Hello, welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Guys, today I saw the biggest story in, well, in financial history during my lifetime, for sure. This is the biggest story. This is the largest, it was the largest corporate theft in history occurred today. That's quite a statement. I mean, considering some of the corporate thefts that we've seen. (laughs) It is quite a statement and it's true. And almost nobody talked about it. Like it it was barely... It was barely in the news today, and it literally was the biggest corporate theft, arguably, in history that occurred today. Well, I bet there was a, probably a lot written about Kanye West and whatever it is that he's talking about. So that's... That's, <laughs> that's obviously more important. Than <laughs> Thank goodness the media is covering the things that it should. So, so how uh, much money if you want to call it that, did these, uh, did these people get? Okay. So, so, so basically, basically what happened was that all the, the PPP loans that were issued, uh, to the corporations and to small businesses during the coronavirus government shutdown or economic shutdown were forgiven. So essentially that means that all of the loans that were issued were grants except for, uh, those issued under two million dollars. So, so it would really only be forgiven for the mega corporations that took right. like in excess of two million dollars. But, right. but what I think they'll do with that eventually, though, is just um, like like in a week or two weeks, maybe then they'll forgive those small business ones as well as a way to to like to market it towards um, as if they're being like small business friendly. You know. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I could see that happening. I, I don't really know too much about how how that sort of uh, legislation tends to get rolled out. But yeah, it was uh, the scale of it was depending on how you calculate it, and like depending on how you figure out the leverage and everything, it was like between two and four trillion dollars. So like just for reference, um, the bailouts in two thousand eight were about eight hundred billion. Um, the Madoff scandal was about twenty billion that he defrauded people, and Enron was about seventy five billion. So this was two to four trillion dollars that that were issued as loans that were just forgiven as as, as grants today, wow. <laughs> and it barely barely even gets a byline. It wasn't even the main story on CNBC today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you know they it it really never ceases to amaze me the types of things the types of examples just like this of massive changes to, I guess you could call it the financial sector, which affect, you know, hundreds of millions of people in a, in a very direct way that is, uh, just goes pretty much undiscussed in the media and, uh, uh, the, you know, God knows what, what they will talk about. I, I was, while my kids were here recently, I was in a, uh, car dealership waiting to get my oil changed and you know they had the tv playing and it was just randomly on cnn and before too long i had to, i had to change it just just because like uh you know i didn't even intend to but they went right to these violent stories where they started showing this footage of this cop punching this woman in the face uh, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not going to have my three. We, we can laugh about it because we've seen so many of these videos that were permanently scarred for life. It's it's completely insane. 
the kinds of things that, uh, I'll be honest with you, it really, even that day, I mean, this wasn't too long ago, you know, and it made me think of the way that we started our first episode where you asked me, you know, if I had, if I had PTSD from, from all that stuff. And I definitely, I, I wouldn't characterize it that way at all, but like, man, that, that stuff really does bother me now. Those videos, that kind of like, you know, just showing that ultra violent stuff like that. I just, I hate it in a way that it, it really never used to bother me. Uh, even back then. You know, I think, I think it is real though, like to some degree, you know, it's popular that now people are saying like, Oh, the culture war isn't real or like what you see on Twitter, or what you see on TV isn't real. I mean, like it actually is real though. Like, of course it's disconnected to, to, to a large degree. And of course, out of context oftentimes, but I mean, like even we covered enough of these things to know that like eventually the context does come out and like there are real parties that are affected by these things. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that like everybody, like 400 million people need to see it at a, at a moment's notice, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting topic. It's something you and I talk a fair bit about. And I, 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 I think you put it very well that yes, it is real in a sense. I mean, you know, uh, it, it is a projection of certain pieces of information that's kind of aggregated on this social media website and, and, you know, it, and, and kind of redistributed in various ways. Uh, and yes, the information you're seeing on there is true. And in a way, you know, you, you can kind of learn valuable information from that and spread valuable information in certain cases. Uh, at the same time, not only is it something that maybe not all hundreds of millions of people need to see at the same time, but also I just don't know if any of us are really equipped to accurately process in context that kind of input. Does that make sense? Like, I, I feel like there's something about the whole nature of news media, you know, the, the idea of reporting news and everything from, from the newspaper to Twitter and all of this that has this very inherently kind of, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's like by its nature, it's out of context. Well, yeah, I think especially with social media, it's, it's the case where there's like a narrative extrapolation going on where like you see one clip or one video and then a million people or not even a million, tens of millions of people could see this and then extrapolate larger narratives on top of it that oftentimes aren't even relevant, like to like in the initial context. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. It's like how people say the camera never lies. That's total bullshit. Like, the, the, you know, it, you could argue that every a photograph by its very nature is a lie, you know, because it's this totally out of context, just kind of slice of that reality. You're, you're not really getting a sense of what was happening by looking at it. You know? it, it goes back to the, I mean, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, the McLuhan idea where it's like the medium is the message. So like, it's the same type of idea where like, um, 
certain personalities and journalists and news people won't go on certain networks because they know that it's going to be portrayed in a certain light, you know, like ir- irregardless of the individual context. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, they know that because they're part of the business of, you know, of, of portraying things in exactly the kind of light that someone decided this should be portrayed. You know, uh, that, that is a, uh, a science or an art, depending on how you want to look at it, that has been well documented for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, it's been obvious that you could see over time, at least how politics is covered, like differently if you watch like Fox or CNN, but it's also been fascinating to see like how different the realities are um, in regards to the coronavirus coverage. Like it's really incredible. So like on Fox News, they barely even talk about it all. And they basically just like say the the economy should be reopened and it's pro-business and all of this. But then like on CNN, I mean, people are like, legitimately scared about it <laughs> like, so wait, a minute, wait a minute are you actually telling me that as a general rule and again you know that i'm like you know i'm, I'm completely tuned out of all this stuff so I, i'm being serious now the are, are you saying that the sort of conservative media like fox news is actually like <clears throat> kind of coming out as not believing in this coronavirus story um, no, I wouldn't say that they don't, not, not that they don't believe in it, but that they're, they're very much more sympathetic towards opening the economy. And like, basically what I've heard is that they advise that like older people should stay at home and like wear masks and be careful, but that like pretty much everybody else should be like going out about, wow. about their lives as, as normal. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because like, normally it's like you, at least normally I think of media as like, oh, you have to like take some from this side and take some from, from that side. And then the truth is somewhere in the middle. But like, oftentimes now I find that that's like really just not the case. Like there's often, like oftentimes one network is just completely wrong about an issue. Like it it really isn't always the case that the truth is somewhere in the middle. Like maybe, maybe that's just a new thing that is more noticeable. True. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be like, I don't spend enough time watching either one of those networks to really know. Oh, I've been, I've been locked in now. Now that I'm at my parents' house, they watch, (laughs) they go, they go back and forth between Fox and CNN. So I see them both now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I have a tendency to think that pretty much both of the, the sort of stories that each of those networks is telling is just a different version of, of bullshit really. Uh, you know, like I was saying, I think in, in our episode with, uh, with Mary, where we were talking about, you know, just the, the nature of what all this stuff is. And I mean, I, that, that's kind of what I fall back on to get my perspective on any of this media is that at the end of the day, these are corporations, you know, trying to, uh, turn a profit for their shareholders. And, um, I just don't, Well, it's like, it's like they would benefit from, from having both narratives out there, you know, like to, to bring it back to, um, the, the, the loans that we were talking about earlier, like it's almost like the corporations had to shut down the economy in order to justify taking the money, like via the government, like through the loans to make up for the money that they would have lost had people chosen not to go out and consume and participate in the economy. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Or any other, any number of disruptions that could have like, you know, resulted from the fact that, that, uh, average 
I mean, I don't want to misspeak here. I don't know exactly what the way to word it is, but basically people have been losing purchasing power. Exactly. So like, like the loans that were issued were under the pretense, like, like they were issued because the government shut down the businesses, like because the state said like, you can't operate your business. But like, if the government didn't do that, and then say 20 or 30% of people just decided to stay home and not consume, then they would have lost like an egregious amount of money, you know? So it's almost like they had to use the government to shut themselves down to justify them taking the money that the treasury printed and then forgiving themselves the loans. Yeah. I I mean, this whole thing, this pandemic has acted as the justification for uh, a, a pretty massive bunch of, you know, shutdowns and, and now regulations that have very clearly affected the smallest businesses and the, and, you know, the, the kind of most struggling sectors of the American economy disproportionately. Um, and just like any other one of these, you know, things that acts like a recession, which is basically what this is, is, is it's a, it's an enforced recession. Um, you know, it, it's, it's going to the, the ones who benefit from it, the ones who get the bailouts are the ones who can afford to, you know what I mean? To lobby Congress for bailouts. And, and that's, and the ones who can afford to, uh, 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 to abide by those very stringent regulations that they're now imposing. You know, I feel like that itself is like a dangerous narrative that's getting perpetuated that, I mean, it, it's not that it's not true, um, but it, it's that that then is going to be used to justify something like uni- universal basic income or some sort of like low level capitulation that just makes the lowest people like scrape by a little bit more to tide us over for like another, for the, for the indefinite future, you know, like it just needs, there just needs to be such a bigger change than like a UBI type type program to, I mean, fundamentally the entire economy needs to be restructured if you actually want to have growth in the economy without issuing debt. I mean, that's, that's the reality of the situation. Like, I mean, for people who don't follow this finance stuff, like we have to print money, we have to issue debt just to keep the economy going. Like, the economy hasn't grown since 2008. It just hasn't. So like the only way that we keep economic activity increasing is through issuing debt. That's the only way. And then like what's going on now is that like we're, we've reached the inflection point on the curve where it's just going exponential. So like before 2008, we only had like, I think it was like a couple trillion dollars worth of debt. And now we're like, we're like well over $20 trillion worth of debt. I, I haven't looked, it might even be like 25. I haven't looked this year exactly, but like it's, I haven't looked some time. I've kind of given, but I mean, then they come up with these programs. Like, I mean, we talked about this, like the, the space space force and they're talking both, both presidential candidates are talking about like a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. So, I mean, like they're just going to have to keep coming up with these, like whether it's coronavirus bailouts or space forces or infrastructure bills or whatever it is, like they're just going to have to keep coming up with new schemes to print money and issue debt. Like that's the only way that that the economy is going to continue going forward. So like, it's not going to decrease from like twenty five trillion to like ten trillion over the next ten years. It's going to go to a hundred trillion. Like it, it's just not avoidable. Yeah, and and I think it's 
and I mean, I just, I feel like I need to disclaim once again that, you know, please take this, everything I'm about to say with an appropriately sized grain of salt. I'm not an expert. I did not even really study very much in the way of finance or economics in school. Uh, we will do our best to post some relevant links in the show notes and, and hopefully you guys can contribute anything that we missed to the conversation. But uh, my, my general understanding of this and by this, I mean like our financial system, our, our currency and how it works uh, is that once they, I mean, I'm kind of glossing over a whole bunch of history here. And like I said, we'll post stuff, but uh, once they put the federal reserve in place, the, the way that our currency began to function is that all of it is so, so the federal reserve is essentially like all central banks in the, in the modern world for the most part are not actually as closely affiliated with the government of the country that they, you know, work with or work for, however you want to look at it. Uh, that what they are is it, it's, it's not, actually a hundred percent like i've never seen one thousand percent convincing definitive evidence of what exactly they are but my understanding is that central banks are actually private banks in a sense and somehow there are their governments around the world especially over the course of the 19th century have passed a series of laws that have Put the central banks, in our case, it's the Federal Reserve, uh, somehow in charge of their economies to and, and puts the issuance of their currency exclusively under the uh, rights of this central bank, again, in our case, the Federal Reserve. So uh, the interesting thing to keep in mind about this is that in all of these cases, the bank charges as a fee for its service interest on all of this currency that it has the monopoly over. So the Federal Reserve, whenever it prints a dollar, which we'll get into how that actually, you know, that's not even what they really do anymore, but they print it at interest. So it what, what that does is it creates this system whereby the U.S. Treasury can never not be in debt to the Federal Reserve because all, but we can't actually print dollars anymore. Those things that people carry in their wallet, they're not actually dollars. They're Federal Reserve. Well, let, let me, let me chime in here just, just quickly. Yeah. This is, this is really important about, um, what Steve Mnuchin, who's head of the, um, the treasury. So he's not in the fed. He's a part of like Trump's team in the white house in the executive branch. Right. So what they did during the coronavirus bailouts, they set up um, trading accounts with, I think it was, uh, I forget if it was BlackRock or Blackstone, one of these, one of these financial institutions, um, to, be, to be able to, to buy corporate debt, um, and underperforming assets essentially. So like, so what Trump did was circumvented the fed and set up this, um, special purpose vehicles they were called. There's like four or five of them to buy different types of assets. So he, he set this up so he doesn't have to go through the Fed to intervene in the market. Do you get that point? Um, I think I do. I, I mean, I get the idea of a, a president circumventing the Fed in a sense. I get, I, so, so you were making the point that 
the the government is indebted to the Fed because the Fed issues the currency. But Trump set up this these special purpose vehicles through Steve Mnuchin through the 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 Treasury where they could purchase assets directly circumventing the Fed. Wow. Well, so what are they, are they purchasing assets directly with treasury bonds? Or are they using? As far as I know, they just printed the money. I mean, like numbers, numbers on a screen is how I heard that it was described. And they did that without the Fed? Yes. Wow. I mean, I guess that's, I don't know. That definitely contradicts my understanding of how this is supposed to work. I didn't realize they could do yeah, that. Yeah, I read I read one article that described it exactly in the terms that you were describing it. And and, and as a result, this was like an important uh, change in, I guess, not necessarily change in policy, but change in, um, like, like a change in the way they, just a change in the power structure between, like the power dynamic between um, like the executive branch and the, and the Federal Reserve. Wow. I mean, yeah, if, if there, you know, if that were what it sounded like, so, I mean, that would be a huge. Change. So traditionally what happens is like the political situation is that the, the president and the executive branch put pressure on the fed to try and move their policy to be more in line with whatever their political agenda is. But the fed has been sort of counter signaling Trump and going against Trump a little bit. Um, not, not that much. I wouldn't say not, not any more than, in the past, but Trump got frustrated with it and set up this new thing now where then he could issue the treasury to purchase as much as he wants. So it doesn't have to go through the Fed in order to do this. I mean, if that's the case, that's like a huge, I guess it doesn't surprise me that it's not being reported in the news, but that that's like one of the biggest things since like the, uh, you know, the Andrew Jackson administration. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll find the article and I'll link it. I'll link it below, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, for the for the record, Andrew Jackson was uh, the last U.S. president to have uh, paid off the national debt, and um, he he actually um, under his presidency and up until basically the U.S. Civil War was the only period of American history where the U.S. was completely independent of any central bank. Um, and uh, I think it's kind of interesting that he got, I think, uh, really very, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say, well, not unfairly. He was probably as racist as anybody else, you know, <laughs> any other, like, American president. So, so his statue would be coming down right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think for, for quite some time, he's been labeled as, like, the racist president, right? He's, like, he's directly associated with the Trail of Tears and all that. <laughs> And I think it, it, it's really interesting to me that nobody seems to know he's also the only president that ever, uh, you know, completely made the country financially independent of, uh, of a central bank. Interesting. I mean, that, that's how it is with everybody, though. It's like it, we're always taught now to try and paint somebody with a broad brush like they were all this way or they were all that way. But with all of these presidents, I mean, they were certainly mixed bags, you know. Oh, they were all a bunch of scumbags as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, I think these people are awful. But I mean, at least from the perspective of managing a country, you know, such as that is, uh, I mean, you know, I think there's something to be said for someone who at least does what their job is supposed to be as opposed to kind of sells out, you know. 
which is is how I would describe the majority of uh, of, uh, of American presidents, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, you were explaining the the structure of the Fed. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, again, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on its structure, but my my understanding is that you know, again, that the Federal Reserve, like all central banks around the world, are independent entities which are not under the authority of the government that they are affiliated with. Uh, a lot of people, I think, assume uh, that, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve is the person who runs the Federal Reserve. It's apparently not the case. They're just an, a, an appointed spokesperson. That person is, in fact, appointed by the president of the United States. But that person, at least, again, my understanding is that they don't actually have any power over how that institution is administered or what the uh, what the interest rate is or any of that stuff. Um, yeah, I think there's a, I'm pretty sure there's a voting body like within the Fed that actually uh, dictates what what policies get enacted, if I, if I understand correctly. And I would assume that it's their, you know, their board of directors, just like it would be with any other bank. Um, I don't know to what extent, you know, I don't know who those people are, you know, uh, or, or where they where they get their their initial capital. Uh, I know that the whole thing, you know, if you want to go back in history, the, the Federal Reserve was put in place uh, in 1913, very shortly before World War One. And it, it was one of the uh, one of the wonderful things that we got from the Woodrow Wilson administration, uh, who I, you know, as far as presidents go, I think he's pretty much one of the uh, most, most treasonous and disgusting versions of an American president you can yeah. I thought you were going to say he was one of the best oh no no I Woodrow Wilson <laughs> is, is I think uh, it's, it's really too bad that that guy was, was around to be honest um, no he um, he he basically under his administration they signed into law this uh, Federal Reserve Act it was one of these wonderful stories where they uh you know, they arranged it so that the opposition members of Congress, you know, the people who were refusing to sign off on the bill were like by a trick of procedure, they were not present, uh, you know, when they took the vote. And so they managed to pass it without them, uh, which is, by the way, a similar set of circumstances for how they uh, they passed the uh, the U.S. Constitution in the first place. But um, the. The, the Federal Reserve, that they basically, the bunch of Rockefeller and, uh, you know, I don't remember if it was Carnegie or, you know, a lot of these banking families, I'm pretty sure Warburg out of Europe was affiliated with it. There are a lot of big banking families for, again, a link to it for people who want to look into it. But they met uh, at this island beach resort off a place in a place called uh, Jekyll Island, Georgia, Um late 1912, I believe. And uh, there's a bunch of publications documenting this. They, they had this, you know, very, very classically conspiratorial meeting where, you know, all of the richest and most powerful people in the world get together in the same place and uh, discuss a plan for how they're going to, um, you know, pass this central bank legislation, basically taking over the financial system of the United States. Um, 
And, you know, you can see pretty clearly how it is that having a system like this would encourage war, right? I mean, anything that keeps the economy growing, pumping out currency, pumping out debt uh, is good for these central banks. You know, they, they want the debt to grow because it's paid to them. I think like my interpretation of it is that there was a lot of unintended consequences from the creation of systems that people at the time didn't fully comprehend of like what the effects would be down the line. Like I tend to take the view that it's not as conspiratorial as people think. Like even with the Fed, I think the Fed gets a bad rap, like especially in like crypto circles and um, online and all of this, like it's, it's easy to hate on the Fed, but I mean like the reality of the situation was like in 1912 whenever this was founded that's what you said right 1912 like yeah, 1913 but yeah. i mean this is like this is when global trade is becoming like a standard thing now and the the initial principles of the fed are to control monetary policy and fiscal policy so that means to control uh currency issuance and to control the interest rates so like when you're trading in a global market it, it's actually necessary to to manage that because you're going to deal with countries that are actively subverting and manipulating their own currencies to get a trading advantage against other countries. So like at some level, like at some centralized level, something has to be done to, to combat the bad actors in the system. I mean, I think you could, if I'm understanding it correctly, what you're basically saying is that it was a, a necessary you know, process that they had to implement in order to adjust to, you know, a, a globalizing economy. Exactly. So it's so like what happens in practice is that like, so this is the current situation with China. Um, so people talk about the manipulation of the Chinese currency a lot. And most people don't really understand the story. But the real story is that the the Chinese Communist Party suppresses the, the Chinese yen, like devalues the Chinese yen so that foreign corporations create jobs and grow the grow the in order to grow the chinese economy so then like so then that creates a problem in the united states because then our corporations are offshoring labor over there so like what should happen like the fed should have countermeasures with regards to our currency to combat that so like if you just let them devalue their currency in comparison to yours and then you don't intervene in that, then they're going to take advantage of you and subvert your economy. So like, it's, it's really a situation where you need to have this just to protect yourself if you're going to engage in global trade. If you're going to engage in global trade. Right, but I mean, there's no... At that level. Yeah. And, and I think that therein lies the rub, is that, you know, if you would have asked someone at that time uh, because that is really what you're absolutely right. It was their adjustment to a, a paradigm that, you know, that, that, that those bankers themselves had, had essentially created. Uh, and I think the point that I would make is that the majority of people, if you had asked them at that time, if you could find a way to show them what the world would look like today, uh, and give them the choice of whether or not they want to adjust to that process or give them the space to perhaps not be a part of that process as many Americans at that time still weren't, you know, like uh, it, it's, it's so hard to imagine that even back then 
that they would have been able to envision that a <laughs> hundred years later we'd have twenty trillion dollars worth of debt. Like I think that would have blown their minds. The people that like the people that founded the Fed. I would love to. I mean, this makes me want to just do some more research because I bet I could find all sorts of people who were who were predicting it with like shocking accuracy. <laughs> it's probably true. It's probably and, true, also. And you know, and, and I mean, um, that's just a, a hunch on my part. But I think that the the thing about this is that this was like a long-standing controversial issue in American history. I mean, I mentioned Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson got rid of the central bank. So, so this had been an issue going. I mean, you could almost say that early American history in a way is the struggle of like the United States government against a central bank in a way, um, at least factions of that government. It was a massively controversial issue in the constitutional convention. You know, famously, like there was this big compromise between the, uh, you know, the, I guess we'll just call it the Thomas Jefferson party. They called themselves the Republicans at that time uh, who, who did not want a central bank. You know, they were kind of the party of the rural people. Uh, and then you had the, the Federalist party, which was the, the party mostly represented by Alexander Hamilton, who was the secretary of the treasury at that time. Uh, he wanted a central bank of some kind, because he felt it was important to have the state banks indebted to a central authority as a way of consolidating federal power, uh, which I think is is very instructive, uh, a, a very you know valuable way to understand how it is that government and just institutions in general view debt uh, as a as a mechanism, but. Um, well, I mean, it's a, I mean, as we're learning now, it's a, it's a strategic geopolitical tool. You know, I mean, fundamentally that's what it is. So like if whatever your views on government are, like it has to be represented in the, in the financial policy and fiscal design of the, of the nation. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, and I think what I would say is that to the extent that the federal reserve or, or central banks in general work the way that I think they do, you know, they, they're, they're basically, that's not what we're dealing with here. Like we have a situation where we have a, you know, a, a third party of some sort or other, uh, to whom our, our government, such as it is, however representative it may still be, you know, uh, is indebted. So, I mean, the idea of having a representative government at that point, I think that's kind of a big thing that I always feel the need to that's usually what I sort of default to whenever folks want to talk about like electoral politics or, I mean, I don't even understand what's the point of seeing things through that lens when, you know, our federal government and by extension, you know, all of our state governments are, they're just completely indebted. So they don't really have that much capacity to formulate the kinds of independent economic policies that I think a lot of people are expecting well, they weren't actually able to do it, but that was there was actually some talk about um, some of the states trying to get their state debt forgiven during the coronavirus bailouts. It didn't materialize, but um, there were a bunch of states that pushed it. They they really tried to push it hard. I saw a couple a couple news articles about it, but yeah, that that at least yet that hasn't materialized. Um, but yeah, there's. I mean, that's what that's what happened with the. Um, 
I, there's there's a great documentary about it, The Smartest Guys in the Room, it's called, about the Enron scandal. I think I've seen that one years ago. Yeah, and like they, I mean, they, de- I forget how much they defrauded um, the state of California, but like they put them in such a financial hole that they still haven't recovered from it. Like it was like tens of billions of dollars that they just, it, and it just completely crippled them, like as as a state. I mean, it, it's really insane to just think about like the scale that, like that we're dealing with. And that was, and that was tens of billions, like 20 years ago. So, I mean, now we're talking about trillions of dollars. Like it, it, it's really hard just to get like, like to keep these numbers straight, straight in your head, you know, when, when, when you get, when, when you get to this level of. of oh of yeah. And speaking of the Federal Reserve and all that stuff, like, I mean, just to, and maybe you can kind of elaborate on on this a little bit more and kind of how this works. But, you know, one of the major issues with having this kind of a debt-based financial system is inflation. And so, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people find this kind of stuff a little bit easy to dismiss because you you reference kind of going pretty far back in, in American history, right? Like, the rate of inflation was almost insignificant up until we put the Federal Reserve in place. And I think it's such a norm that has been created, this idea of massive inflation. I'll find like a graph to put up in the show notes, but it's it's just like so obvious, you know, right there at that point. It's just like when all the constant war starts, you know, starting with World War One and just the, the regular... Um, massive expenditures by government increase in uh, all of the, uh, the welfare state, everything that, that we consider totally commonplace now uh, in terms of the, the modern administration of government and what that costs the economy, that all started then. And uh, I think that's really important for people to consider. Well, yeah, the, the inflation argument is extremely important um, because that's that's the argument that the Federal Reserve uses to justify um, printing money. So like the check, the economic check on printing money is inflation. So like if if they were printing money and then we started to see inflation in the real economy, then that would be a signal that, OK, we're printing too much money. Things are getting out of control. We need to stop printing money and pull currency back. But what they've done is changed the way they calculate the CPI. I think it was in the 90s they changed it because it was getting too high. And then now they say that there's no inflation. Can you explain to us what the CPI is? So so the CPI is the consumer price index, and that's just the index that they use to measure inflation. So they basically take like a basket of different goods um, Mm -hmm. and then average them, like average the cost out per year and then compare it like year over year and then like that's how they determine what the inflation is but there's a there's a bunch of tricks that are like implanted into the formula to intentionally underestimate it that i I would love to see what that basket of goods exactly is yeah and and that's where the the fuckery occurs with it so like uh, basically what happens is this is just one example but there's 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 like i think there's like three specific problems with it but this this is one of them uh and it's a substitution problem so the problem is that they adjust for productivity um, increases in the product. So, like, a, like the idea is that if if you, if there was like a car that cost a thousand dollars thirty years ago, 
and it costs $20,000 now, they would say that, well, there's been $19,000 worth of productivity enhancements since then, so the price hasn't really inflated, which is true, but the problem is that you can't buy the $1,000 car anymore. Do you get the point? When you say you can't buy the $1,000 car anymore, what... I mean, first of all, when have you ever been able to buy a thousand dollars? Maybe this is more than thirty years ago. <laughs> but Fair but enough. but let's say like at a at a time when you could buy a new car for a thousand dollars, you can't do that anymore. Like that you can't buy that same car with that same level of technology then as you can now. So like that product doesn't exist in the market anymore. So like right. or in the same vein, like if you go to a like if you need to buy a a smartphone for work now. Like, even though there's been productivity enhancements in the phone compared to a, like, like a flip phone from 15 years ago, you can't use the flip phone for work. So you need to get the other one. So like it creates a false choice. And then that in effect underestimates inflation. I think I'm more or less following what you're saying, but I mean, I, I, at least with regard to cars, I know a big part of that is because the government subsidizes the hell out of those, you know, those car manufacturing companies. I mean, it's I think it's usually the case that most industries which are heavily protected by government are typically the things that you find yourself wondering why the hell are they still so expensive? Uh, things like cars things like air travel, things like higher education. Um, uh, you know, they, they subsidize those companies and basically allow them to keep their prices inflated. Whereas I, I do think that uh, we probably would see if, it, if they kind of allowed a much more, you know what I mean? If they, if they allowed that uh, increasing efficiency over time to, uh, it, it would lower the price. Yeah. Okay. So now to, to bring it back to what we were talking about before. So the point is if you, if you can claim that there's no inflation, then you could justify printing money and issuing debt into infinity because there's no downside to doing it if there's no inflation measured across the asset classes in in the economy. So like when you listen to uh, the Fed speakers, the most important thing they talk about every, every two weeks when they do the meeting is uh, the inflation metric. And every time, practically, they either measure like negative inflation or like no inflation. But I mean, it just stands to reason that that's actually impossible. Like if you're printing four trillion dollars and putting it and you're directly buying assets, directly buying debt, directly buying um, ETFs. This this is that was one of the things they actually purchased in the special purpose vehicles was like ETFs of um, like junk bonds and stuff, but like, what are ETFs? Um, this is going to be a rabbit hole, but (laughs) ETFs are just exchange traded funds. They're just like, um, baskets of the ones that they bought were, uh, corporate debt baskets. So like in, in the, in the junk bond ETF, it would contain, um, bonds of say like, like different, different corporate bond issuances that were like really high, high yield. So the idea is that they would buy those in order to suppress the yield so that those companies wouldn't default on their loans. Um, But, but the point is when you have, like when you're printing the money in order to buy these assets, the inflation 
is in the assets themselves. Like you're measuring the prices of cars, but if you measured that, like the asset price year over year, that are inflating as a part of your system that you just pumped $4 trillion into. Sure. But it's not even that complicated. It's really just, it's even more basic than that. It's, it's like if, if the junk bond ETF cost $10 today and then they bought, um, and then they bought double the, the, the available supply of issued shares and then it was $20, then you just inflated the junk bond ETF by a hundred percent. So like that's a hundred percent inflation in the asset. It's just a, it's just financial inflation. That's being, it, it's just not being counted. So like the stock market goes higher because they're buying, um, because they're printing the money and inserting it into the like financial assets. But like, that's where the inflation is. I mean, it's also in the real economy, but like most obviously it's in the financial assets. Mm-hmm. Because they they've been like appraised at. Well, because they're literally just adding demand. Like they're literally just buying them on the open market. So like uh-huh. if there was only 10 participants buying Apple stock in one day, and then the fed steps in and says, they're going to buy a trillion dollars worth of Apple stock. Well, then they just inflated the price of the Apple stock Mm -hmm. because they directly entered the market. Yeah. uh, You know, I don't really, I just kind of feel like we should kill all these people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting to think about like, so we're at the stage where we're like 20, 25 trillion in debt right now. Like, there's really no reason to think that it should reverse or that it should like change course. I mean, like them stealing the, I mean, I would just look at it as straight theft of, of the two to $4 trillion today. Like that is just like a total mask off move where it's like, we're going to do this. There's nothing you can do about it. And there's no reason to think that it won't escalate going forward. There's absolutely no reason to think that. Um, I, I feel like in my mind, that's what I've sort of been saying since the 2008 bailouts, which, I mean, I, I, maybe you can kind of explain to us a little bit, sort of what the difference is between those and these, but I don't know, to me, especially the way they did two of them like that, like first there, you know, the kind of outgoing Bush administration did like a big bailout and then. Obama came in with hope and change and he did another even bigger bailout, not by too much. Right? It was just like slightly bigger. Well, it, it is important to note that those bailouts were actually loans and they were repaid. So they weren't grants like the corporations didn't just get free money and then not have to pay it back. But in this case, they literally got free money and don't have to pay it back. So that's like a marked escalation from the 2008 situation. Have they paid back that money? Yes, yes. Most of them have, I believe, yes. Well, okay. I feel like that that like bears some explaining right there. How is that possible? Like if you're saying that there hasn't been any economic growth since 2008. Uh, in, in aggregate. So I mean like the, the companies that got the, that got the funds have consolidated and they have, they have grown. And they've so those expanded. funds actually, you could say, you know, had the intended effect. Right. Yes. Like I, w- like if you were an economist looking at those, you would say that the, that the 2008 
bailout was successful. Mm-hmm. If you're again, like, yeah, in, in economic, like in economic theory terms, you know, but, but yeah, this one, this one is completely different in that they just were like, I mean, it's the difference between a loan and a grant fundamentally. That is, that, I mean, I guess that is much more extreme now that you explain the, the difference there because that, but yeah, so the point is like, so now we're at a point where <laughs> like just, just to keep like our 2% target GDP and like to keep everything going in the direction we're going, we had to print two to 4 trillion this year just to keep it going. So like, what are we going to have to do next year? And then next year after that, like they're going to have to keep coming up with new programs and new reasons to, to print the money in order to keep it going. There's, there's really no other way. So like, (laughs) I mean, it's conceivable that in like five years, we're looking at like 10, $20 trillion bailouts. Like there's really no reason to think that wouldn't happen. And then to tie it into what we were talking about before, like then you combine that with the fact that the fed is saying there's still no inflation and that would be the check on this type of policy. I mean, there's really no reason to think that they wouldn't just like continue this exponential blowout of the debt. So like, and this is also interesting, uh, earlier this week, (laughs) China, (laughs) earlier this week, China on their, on their newspaper, like on the, on the main newspaper in China, they told everybody to buy stocks. So like what's gone on since the Corona, I don't know, I don't know how much you follow the markets, but like, I think the NASDAQ is up like 10 or 15% from the previous high before the coronavirus bailout. So the market has gone straight up since like the crash, like literally straight up. So then China is watching this and now they're getting worried. So now they're telling, they're literally going in the newspaper and telling all of their citizens to buy Chinese stocks. So right now (laughs) we're in a situation where the U S and China are both inflating their stock markets as much as possible, like in, in basically a proxy economic war. I mean, that's, that's the real economic situation that we're in right now. So like, they're just, they're just blowing up these bubbles as big as they can. And like, it's, it's a totally untenable situation and something is going to break eventually. But like, I mean, it's, it's really hard to imagine what's going to happen. I mean, literally anything can happen at any point. And that's what it feels like. I mean, like I trade and I follow the markets every day. Um, and it's, it's absolutely incredible. Like I've never seen anything like it. And I have absolutely no doubt that Mnuchin and the Fed are intervening tick by tick in the market. I mean, you'll watch it like over the last couple of weeks, you'll watch it like like the Nasdaq hit like just tick red and then immediately spike up like 60 basis points. It, it's almost as if somebody is literally there stepping in and buying it every time it goes negative. That's that's literally what it feels like. This whole situation is like very eerily similar to the dynamic that existed, um, I'd say most notably between Great Britain and Germany, like around the time that World War I started. Uh, it, it's, you know, Germany in this case being like, you know, it's like China is the Germany of today, I guess you could say, and, and maybe the US is the Britain of today. but. Uh, it's just so scary to see that there's this kind of buildup, you know, both military and economic of this growing power that is, uh, and it's, it's not like China is the only one, you know, there are a handful of other massively 
economically influential countries, you know, the, the BRICS, I think, in general. Um, but, you know, whatever it ends up being, whatever specific shape it ends up taking, like when, when these kinds of tensions ratchet up like this and these sorts of, you know, situations that had been symbiotic, like economically, whatever you want to say about the trade relationship with China, like it was humming along there for a couple of decades. Uh, and when that changes, you know, God only knows, like, I don't even know what a modern kind of war would look like. Well, I mean, I think, I think we're living through it right now. I think, I think you could make that argument. You could really make that argument that we're living through what that looks like now. You know, I was having this discussion with a friend earlier today, and this is, this is really interesting to talk about is that I remember um, I think it was the second term of Obama when he was talking about the TPP deal. Do you remember that? Yes. So it was like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And yep. the basic geopolitical plan was to isolate China by forming an economic alliance with a lot of their regional trading partners in Asia. Um, but it would have set up all of these extrajudicial corporate courts and all of this or- Orwellian corporate uh, corporate stuff. But um, I mean, you know, there already is the WTO that... Right. Yeah. 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 And, but it's interesting to think like we're at a point now where that situation might actually have been prudent and preferable uh, in retrospect to where we're at now. You know, it's really interesting to watch some of these important geopolitical decisions play out over the years and then see um, like, like where we've moved since then. How do you mean? Like, like at the time I remember thinking like, oh, wow, like TPP is going to be horrible. Like we're all going to live under, <laughs> under these corporate courts. And like, if I, I remember the, the main talking point was that a corporation would be able to sue a country if it endangered its profitability. I remember that was like <laughs> one of the things that was going to be in TPP and then it, like eventually it got, it had so much public backlash that they didn't pass it. For but, some time now, I mean, I feel like. I mean, more or less, but I mean, like that, it, it seems to me now, though, that like that actually would have been a prudent strategy to to tame the China situation. And I mean, now we're looking at like a massive China problem economically compared to what maybe would have been preferable uh, to, to go in the policy direction of TPP. I mean, I, look, I, I don't know if. My understanding of this whole thing is that it really, whether we're talking about China, whether we're talking about India or Russia or any of these BRICS countries that are uh, rapidly developing and kind of becoming, you know, quote unquote, threats to the the Western world, uh, whether perceived or real or however all of that actually works, I, I think it's important to understand that that economic development, that military development is a product of the global economy that they've all been very much encouraged mostly by Western, you know, Western based entities to participate in. And I mean, I I don't know if it makes sense to me to think of these things as kind of like the, I, I first of all, I, I think it's more complicated than China or India or any other country as this like self-contained, self-interested, cohesive, you know, unified entity. 
I think it's probably more complicated than that. And, it, and it'll get more complicated than that as this process continues. I don't think that they're in, in as much lockstep as people like to think. Um, well, my framing of it is that there's different internationalist elements that are trying to consolidate their, not only their power, but also their capital through the combination of global markets. So like there's obviously there's a massive financial interest to merge the U S and Chinese markets so that financiers and corporations can get access to the Chinese, um, to the Chinese market. Like, I mean, famously, it was like, you know, the, this is the Rockefeller Foundation is all over that, uh, you know, when China opened up in the 70s under the Nixon administration, that whole thing. Um, it's, it, it's all. Exactly. And, and I'm, I very much believe that those elements are still present in our politics today. And I mean, like, it, it's easy to say that all the Democrats are controlled by China, which, <laughs> which I believe they are. But like, I, I, I definitely think that those elements also exist within the corporate Republican side as well. So, I mean, like, to me, it's not even like a leftist versus a right leaning person or like, oh, like no. it's this not like a left versus thing. the right. To me, yeah. it's always like like the proper framing is um, is internationalist versus um, nationalist or local or ho- however low you want to go with it. But like, I think that's the framing that I'm interpreting these events through because like I 100% agree with that framing I think that's exactly how it works because like even if even if you're China or Iran and you have like a a dictatorship or whatever your situation is I mean like ultimately you're going to get more power and influence by globalizing your market and participating in um, in these global markets I mean that's that's the game (laughs) like that's being played you know so like and, and also I mean it's they can also see that those governments that don't play ball with this process have a tendency to get themselves bombed (laughs) for a variety of different reasons. I mean, that's not, you know, especially especially if they have some sort of valuable resource that's desirable. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That that that, that global market wants a piece of, Um, you know, so it's, it's dangerous to, to be an independent thinker if you're, uh, if you're running a country. Um, you know, I have to say, as much as I, uh, I, I resist the, the, I like to think I tried my best to resist the urge to kind of, you know, choose sides in, in all of this ridiculous geopolitical theater. I can't help but, but be just a little bit uh, sympathetic in some way to the kinds of things that I see Vladimir Putin doing. Uh, you know, just the, the sort of the, the role that he generally seems to play, even in the media, you know. Oh, my God. He had a great quote the other day. Tell, I don't know if you saw Not it. He, all, no. he, was, he was asked about, <laughs> I guess, at the embassy in Russia, the U.S. embassy in Russia, they put up like uh, Black Lives Matter and like a, like a rainbow flag there. So one of the journalists asked Putin about it. And his response was, it says a lot about the people who work there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, he's got some good moments. He 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 uh, has managed to, and yeah, I could say a lot of very critical things about you know Putin and Russia and, and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, there's something very admirable to me about the way in which he has been kind of willing to stand up to Western media narratives um, 
and uh, I think he he has a, a lot of very fair points to make. You know. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I think he's the most interesting leader by far. I agree. Um, I mean, he's clearly the most intelligent. Like, I think he's the most intelligent. I think he's the most capable. Like, <laughs> I mean, say what you want about him, but like, it's obvious that he he knows what games are being played. He knows he's playing them, and he's acting in. I mean, whether you say it's Russia's best interest or his own. It's debatable, I mean, he, but he at un- least he's like, according to that version of it, he's doing his job, you know? like. And he, and he, he also makes an effort to, to actually describe the geopolitical picture in a way that is mostly accurate. You know, totally. I mean, of course, it's like slanted totally. towards his, yeah, he's his not world. He's super but... critical of his own country, you know, to the extent and, and like I could be I could say plenty of critical things about RT and all of those things. I, I don't want to romanticize it in any way, but for sure, like it's it's the kind of, you know, it's I, I feel like it's uh, again, I don't pay nearly enough attention to either him or Trump to really be able to make a good comparison. But I feel like it's, it's similar to the way in which a lot of people uh, at least characterize Donald Trump. You know, who else is good is um, uh, that Ahmadinejad, I think his name was. I've always liked him too. Always liked yeah, him. Yeah, but he, on, I think on Twitter every once in a while, he'll release like a couple salient um, like geopolitical analyses. And I mean, like you could tell when people are like, honestly analyzing the situation and like his analyses resonate with me and Putin's definitely resonate and say what you will about him. I think Trump's resonate as well. I have to tell you, I have to tell you, and this is going to be a little bit controversial in, you know, this, this audience maybe, but I've always been kind of a fan of Fidel Castro too. (laughs) I really have. I've always really appreciated, uh, you know, the way that he, his, his perspective, at least, you know, on, on geopolitics, like I think he always had some pretty fair points to make. Uh, one thing that's kind of crazy though, with Fidel Castro is a lot of people don't know this with the, the Cuban missile crisis. It was him and like Che Guevara, like basically the Cuban government that was most apparently, this is so the story goes, according to Dan Carlin, uh, most in favor of using nuclear weapons like on the like they <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't surprise me one bit to be honest we're we're basically trying to apparently uh of course this is the story the russians probably put out you know i'm sure it was who knows you know but yeah supposedly they were trying to talk them down and the cubans just wanted to Washington. do you want to end it on that positive note right there yeah let's uh you know let's not launch nukes at each other folks <laughs> that's not worth it words to live by yes indeed and i did want to briefly thank our uh, our most recent crop of uh of supporters uh you know i just want to briefly say that um, i don't understand what's wrong with you people that you actually want to send us your your money but we unbelievably appreciate it and uh you know i can't even express how exciting it is to see that there's uh, that there's uh, interest in in us having these, these silly little conversations so thank you all very much Thank you.